Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. Tonight we're going to be in the parable of the wicked tenants. I, I love parables because it has a message behind it, and I always like to try to figure out what Jesus is saying. Uh, tonight, the, the parable of the wicked tenants is really addressing the, is the Jewish leaders and the nation, how corrupt it is. And Jesus speaks in parables a lot uh, for one reason, because he's a good teacher, and another reason that he speaks in parables so that he can say what he wants with his word without being condemned for it by the Jewish leaders until the time comes for it. So the parable of the wicked tenants are going to be in Matthew 21, verses 33 through 44. Uh, We find Jesus coming into Jerusalem, and he comes to the temple, and and he turns the tables over in the temples because he sees the money changes going on in there, and he starts to talk to the people and speak to the people in parables, and he personally addresses the Jewish leaders. I'm going to show a video of what happens when he came into the temple, and we pick it up where he speaks to the Jewish leaders, and he tells this parable. And if you want to follow along with Matthew 21, 33 to 44, you can open your Bibles and follow along when Jesus speaks. There was once a man who planted a vineyard, rented it out to tenants, and then left home for a long time. When the time came to gather the grapes, he sent a slave to the tenants to receive from them his share of the harvest. But the tenants beat the slave and sent him back without a thing. So he sent another slave. But the tenants beat him too, treated him shamefully and sent him back without a thing. Then he sent a third slave. But the tenants wounded him too and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said to himself, What shall I do? I will send my own dear son. Surely they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him coming, they said to one another, This is the owner's son. Let's kill him and his property will be ours. What happened? Tell us more. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to those tenants? He will come and kill those men and give the vineyard over to other tenants. What then does this scripture mean? The stone which the builders rejected as worthless turned out to be the most important of all. Everyone who falls on that stone will be cut to pieces. And if that stone falls on someone, it will crush him to dust. You can tell Jesus is a little mad. But what is a parable? Just get a simple definition of a parable. A simple story usually of an occurrence of a familiar kind from which a moral or religious lesson may be drawn. It's a comparison. It's a story comparison to something or event that Jesus wanted to get across that he knew that people who believed in him would understand, that people who didn't believe in him wouldn't understand because they're too involved with themselves. Jesus was presumably still in the temple 
when the representatives of the Sanhedrin had come to question him. They had failed in their first attempt in tricking Jesus into the answer that would condemn him. Jesus wants us to understand God's truth for ourselves, applying it personally and obeying it. Knowing Jesus is more than just following Jesus. You must follow Jesus and merely knowing information is not enough. This particular parable pointedly describes the religious leaders who stood before Jesus, showed that Jesus knew their intention to kill him, and warned them of their ultimate punishment for their actions. The moment Jesus spoke of the vineyard, the well-versed religious leaders would recognize the correlation with the words from Isaiah, who described Israel as a vineyard. Thus, they immediately understood that Jesus was speaking about them. Isaiah's parable described judgment on Israel. Jesus' parable described judgment too. The vineyard also portrays God's grace. The situation pictured in this parable was by no means unusual. Galilee had many such estates with absentee owners who had hired ten farmers to care for the fields and the crops. Much land was dedicated to the grape vineyards, with wine being one of the major exports of Galilee. The tenant farmers paid their rent by giving a portion of the crop to the landowner, who would send servants at the harvest time to collect it. The landowner would send the servants to collect it, and tensions often arose, and records show exists of bitter disputes between landowners and their tenants. The angry tenants in Jesus' parable reflected the social upheaval of the time in Palestine. This was a choice vineyard that required protection. A stone wall protected it from thriving, thieving people or animals. A pit collected the juice of the grapes as they were crushed, and the watchtower was a lookout, a shelter for the grape gatherers. These details provided a lot of local color, but was insignificant to the parable. The main characters of the parable are significant and provide the allegory. The main elements in the parable with the characters are the man who planted the vineyard, the owner, who is God, the vineyard, which is in Israel, the tenant farmers, the Jewish leaders, the landowner's servants, who are the prophets and the priests who remain faithful to God and preach to Israel, the son, who is Jesus, and the others whom the vineyard was going to be given to, which are the Gentiles. Israel, pictured as a vineyard, was the nation that God had cultivated to bring salvation to the world. The religious leaders not only frustrated their purpose, they also killed those who were trying to fulfill it. They were so jealous and possessive that they ignored the welfare of the very people they were supposed to bring to God. By telling the story, Jesus exposed the religious leaders' plot to kill him, and he warned them that their sins would be punished. When the great harvest came, the absentee landowner sent a servant to collect the rent, namely some of the fruit of the vineyard, only this amount amounted to a quarter to half the crop, properly in the form of wine, not grapes. In Jesus' parable, the servants that were sent to the tents referred to the prophets and the priests from God had sent over the years to the nation of Israel to bring them back towards God. The picture of the angry tenants beating the landowner 
landowner's slave and sending him on his way without any rent did not shock, the Jesus, shock Jesus' audiences. The rapidly deteriorating situation in Palestine, with guerrillas fighting for the freedom for Rome and bandits ravaging the, the land, made this an especially significant parable. The tenants who were entrusted with the care of the vineyard represented the religious leaders who were entrusted with the spiritual care of Israel. But instead of listening to the prophets, God's servants, the religious leaders had mistreated them and stubbornly refused to listen. The first servant returned empty-handed to the landowner, determined to collect what is due. The landowner sent a second servant. This one was treated even more harshly. While some were beaten, others were killed. Jesus could, uh, could hardly ever make this point even more clear. Throughout Israel's history, the leadership constantly rejected the prophets. God sent to them by refusing to turn away from the idols to follow God's guidance. Many of God's prophets were beaten. Others were killed. The fact that he sent so many portrays God's patience and his grace and his loving kindness. With all the servants having been mistreated or killed, the landowner had only one message left. That was to send his beloved son. This stone was sent to the tenant farmers to collect the fruit of the vineyard in hopes that the farmers would give the son due honor and respect. This beloved son refers to Jesus. This is the same description God used at Jesus when he was baptized by John the Baptist, that it was his only beloved son who was well pleased. The son was sent last of all to the stubborn and rebellious nation of Israel to win them back to God and away from the self-serving religious leadership. So here we see a landowner who loses several servants then sends his only son, maybe accused of closing his eyes to the dangers of the mission. The son, after all, is a land grabber's prime target. Getting rid of him clears title for greedy tenants, and the landowner should have known this. So why did God send his son? Why did he send Jesus if the prophets had already been badly treated? Because the mission required it, and the love required that the mission be completed. Next time you feel like you're depressed or you feel your faith is fading, and you don't feel close to God and, your, and your Holy, the Holy Spirit is not upon you, think about the sacrifice that Jesus did for us. The tenants probably thought that the arrival of the son meant that his father, the landowner, had died. In Palestine at the time, ownerless or unclaimed land could be owned by whoever claimed it first. Thus they reasoned that if they killed the son, they could claim the property for their own. So they killed the son and threw his body over the wall without burial, a horrible indignity in Israel. Jesus came to, call, came to call Israel back to God, but the religious leaders caught up in their positions wanted to hold on to their power and prestige with the people. Jesus threatened to take that all away. They couldn't match his teaching, his miracles, or his popularity. They thought that killing Jesus was the only way to gain back the respect of the people that seemed to be slipping away from their grasp. Notice that the point that the body was thrown out of the vineyard, therefore the son was killed in the vineyard. 
Jesus would be killed in Israel, yet outside the walls of Jerusalem as a result of a platform by Israel's religious leaders. Jesus then asked his tenants to consider what the landowner would do once he heard heard of his son's murder. In Greek, owner is curious, meaning master. It was also a title for God, meaning the Lord. In using this word, Jesus was given a deliberate hint about who the owner really was and who it represented. Jesus then answered his own question. All agreed that the landowner would come kill the tenants and give the vineyard to others who would care for it and pay the rent. Like the son, like the son who was rejected and murdered by the tenants, Jesus referred to himself as a stone which the builders rejected. The cornerstone was the most important stone in the building, used as a standard to make sure that the other stones of the building were, were straight. Our cornerstone is Jesus Christ. We need the cornerstone to build the rest of our faith, the walls of our faith. A lot of times, as Christians, we trip over that cornerstone. Our faith doesn't build, get built up because that stone, cornerstone is not there for us. The religious leaders tripped over that, not only tripped over that cornerstone, but it threw it away. Just like builders who build a building and want to fit the walls to be exactly right, if that cornerstone isn't correct, they'll throw it away. But the religious leaders threw that cornerstone away. And one day that rejected stone will indeed become the cornerstone with all the right qualifications for Jesus. For Jesus will come as king to inaugurate an ending kingdom, and he had already become a spiritual kingdom as the cornerstone of a brand new building, the Christian church. Jesus' life and teaching will be the church's foundation. Now, you say to yourself, what does this parable have to do with us over 2,000 years ago, and how does it pertain to us today? Well, you see, God is the owner. God owns you. God is the owner. You are not an accident. You are his workmanship. You are not your mother's idea. You are not your father's idea. You are God's idea. He created you for a purpose. It says in Jeremiah, before we, you were ever formed, God designed you, and he wrote your members in his book. And each and every one is created by God, owned by God, and therefore, fair for God. In Galatians 1, 16, it says, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. For him, for by him, all things were created. Then Paul then goes on to explain what all things encompass. I think all things are all things, right? But Paul wants you to understand how big all things is. Things in heaven, things on earth, invisible and invisible, all things that are large enough to see, and even the things that are so tiny we can't see. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things, say all, all things were created by him. But listen to the last words, and for him. 
Each of us was created by him and for him. He has ownership over us as the creator. In Revelations 4, verse 11, a song that we sing, Thou art worthy, O Lord, because thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are created. So the first thing to understand is we, we are owned by God. We are the vineyard. We are his workmanship. But then there's a day of stewardship. There's a day of accountability. God desires fruit from our lives. He doesn't make junk. There is not one of us here that he didn't make with value and purpose. God made us all, and he expects and desires and looks for fruit. He looks for us to produce something through him in this life. I don't want to stand before God empty-handed. I really don't. I want to stand before him, not on my merit or worth, but upon the finished work of Christ. But I will be accountable for what I do in my life. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Uber was created by God. And God planned Uber. He planned some good works that, that Uber was going to do. You don't mind me picking on you, Luba, right? First right. Peter 4.10 says, Each of us has received the gift. And it says we should minister the gift and serve that gift as good stewards. As those who realize we are special and we have been given something and we are to minister that gift. So the first point is we are all owned and we belong to him. The second point is he created us for fruitfulness. He created us to serve, to serve through him other people. That's as we do in our ministry. We have food for the soul, the homeless ministry. We serve other people. We serve to glorify him. There are a lot of people that get caught up in ministry that they do it for their own purpose. It's not to glorify themselves, but it's to glorify him. We have to remember when we serve that we're glorifying him, not ourselves. All those who realize we are special, we have been given something and we could minister the gift. He created us to serve, to serve through him and other people. All that you see will pass away, but the only thing that will enter eternity is people. The Bible says all this stuff will pass away, even the elements will melt. If you are living for your life, for all the stuff on this earth, all the foolishness, you are really foolish. When I was about... 22 years old, I had this car. It was a 455 V8 Cutlass Supreme. Navy blue, it had that kind of painting where it sparkled. You know, white interior, white vinyl top, right? Mag wheels, spoke mag wheels. It was beautiful. I think I waxed it three times a day. But one day I drove out of my driveway, and all of a sudden I saw smoke coming out of the hood. A piece of dirt got stuck in the choke. At that time, cars had carburetors. It got stuck in the choke, and the car caught fire. So what was the lesson I learned from that? When you make things that idle in your life, you lose it. And usually when you worship, it destroys us if it's not in God. So what we worship that's not in God will eventually destroy us. 
Satan dangles the things of this world in front of us like bait on a hook that he can get our attention or loyalty to things and not to God. He does that now with our youth. He dangles the things in front of them that they know that's easy to get and enjoyable to them. And they don't understand the consequence. But God made you with a purpose to fulfill on this earth. Here's what we do. He sends his servants by. Maybe it's a pastor, and he preaches on a Sunday like Pastor Joe. And he says, your life is not your own. Not only did he create you, but he bought you. And your life is not your own. And so we listen, and then we get up from our pew, and we walk out, and we rebel. Say, we're going to do our own way anyway even though he says that we should follow Christ. So now maybe it's a Sunday school teacher or an elder or an usher or another brother or sister, and you say, hey, you know, I haven't seen you for a long time. You know, how things have been going? You know, uh, is everything okay with you? And the brother might say, I'm doing okay, but even if it's it's not none of your business. What happened was this. God sent prophets and messengers, and you know what we did. They killed every one of them. The prophets that came, and they had the word of God, and they said to God, is the owner, and you're the vineyard. You're supposed to be bringing forth fruit, and you're just consuming everything on yourself. You know how to tell if you're a messenger or a prophet? They kill you. Well, not literally today, but sometimes I don't know. Things have been happening that they actually do kill you. Right? They kill you, and you don't believe me. Let's look at and turn to Chronicles, Second Chronicles 36, verse 16. But they mocked the messengers of God, and they despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. Has God sent someone into your into you that cares about you and all you did was turn your back on them? Now listen, you can get away with that some of the time for a season or so, but the Bible says God is not mocked and what you sow, you're going to reap. Whatever you choose to do, bring forth fruit. If you, if you choose to sow the flesh, you will reap from the flesh and you will reap the destruction of the flesh. But if you choose to sow from the Spirit, will have life of spiritual things. But they wouldn't listen, so the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy, a punishment that could not be averted. In Acts 7.52, the disciple disciple of the apostle Stephen, speaking to the Jewish court, says to them, which one of your prophets did your fathers not kill? That was pretty bold. So the point is, God sends people by, by with a message and we get all stiff-necked and all uptight about ourselves, and we do it our way anyway. So what does God do? Finally, he sends his son, the final offer. God tried to send people in. God tried to send people. He sent creation stars and wonders should have brought us to, brought us to him with his marvelous creation as the creator. So from the beginning, what do we do? We worship the creature instead of the creator. We worship the sun. We worship the moon. We worship the seasons. We made statues of all types of creation and worship them. 
And then he saw his law, the Ten Commandments, and many rebelled against them, and others became religious. And they turned his Ten Commandments into 3,000-plus laws. Then he sent prophets, and we killed them. So now his last offer, his highest, best appearance, he sent himself as a man, the man we call the Son of God. There was a man that uh, grew up as a kid. He had the foundation in Jesus. He was under very strict grandparents, made him go to Sunday school. He grew up in the church, created a foundation for himself until he was a teenager, and things changed when his grandparents died. He went out into the world, and God let him do it. He sowed from the flesh. His life wasn't so good. He went through divorce. He went through bad relationships. He really had a hard time. Then God decided to step in again. He says, I have a plan for you. And he put people in his life, a a woman in his life, and a a wife in his life, and things started to change, and he started to come back to God. Why? Because he had that foundation. He had that foundation from the very beginning, and that man was me. So in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, it says this. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed all heir of all things, to whom also he made the world. He is expressed the image of God's nature, just like the example of a ring imprinted into clay. It says Jesus is the highest messenger, but not only the highest, the final one. So now the question is, what do we do? What do we do with him? Well, they rejected him, but he, he comes new for your life. He came and was born in a manger that he might be redeemed, die to redeem you. And what do we do with him? So, today we're, we're in the vineyard. The world is the vineyard. So what are we going to do about it? God is the owner of the world. He sends us out into the vineyard to preach his word. Do we sow the seeds of salvation? Or do we just sit on our hands and do nothing? What do we do to please the person that sacrificed his son for us? What would the owner think if we did nothing? Or what would the owner do if we did nothing? Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.